Welcome to today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Monday, January 23rd. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker. Here is our first story. Months-long strike at Ingredian Ends. Union ratifies deal that includes wage increases and amnesty. By Marissa Payne out of Cedar Rapids. Union workers voted Sunday to ratify a four-year contract with multinational ingredients maker Ingredian, ending a strike that has stretched on for nearly six months against the company's Cedar Rapids facility. About 88 workers trickled in before 10 a.m. Sunday at Teamsters Hall to vote on whether to ratify the contract and bring an end to the strike that began August 1st. After over two years of discussion, union members could be heard clapping behind closed doors and began to cast written ballots. They wrapped up just before 1 p.m. with the vote to ratify the deal. Mike Moore, the principal and president of Bakery, Confectionery, Tobacco Workers, and Grain Millers International Union Local 100G, had said Thursday that Ingredian and the union reached the tentative deal after two days of negotiations last week. Overall, he said, reaching a deal took about 25 face-to-face sessions. Moore thanked people who supported the striking workers and donated to them, and especially the approximately 100 union members for their efforts the last 175 days. They stood strong, and they need to hold their heads high, he said. He declined to provide the percentage of members who voted for and against the contract. Not all were present for the vote, and he said some have found other jobs to make ends meet. Moore said union members will not return to work until February 6th. He plans to discuss a return-to-work agreement with the company Monday with his international representative. While many members are relieved the strike is now over, Moore said there are others who would have liked a better deal and wish they could have held out longer. Being in negotiations since July, I do not think there was anything left on the table, Moore said. I think if we stayed out, we would have lost more. The contract includes increased pay rates, retained seniority with overtime where longer-tenured workers get first dibs on overtime work, and provides an amnesty clause to protect striking workers from discipline, Moore said. Union negotiators also worked out language on overtime and agreement on maintenance department scheduling. Moore said there was some compromise on the requirements for workers to learn an additional job, down from two or more jobs to just one. He noted the union saved lab tech jobs and maintenance jobs, though he hopes union leaders and the company still can work out improvements to the maintenance department schedule. After the vote, most of the union members stayed for a group photo and huddled in small groups to talk. Some went to the Ingredient plant on 1st Street Southwest to take down strike signs and other materials, and others went to Lucita's Diner to take a breather after nearly six months of striking and negotiations. Elaine Swiger, 57, who has worked in the starch department for 27 years, before Ingredient acquired the plant in 2015 from Penford, said she's proud of her union brothers and sisters who stayed strong because it paid off. It was something that needed to be done, but I'm also glad it's over, Swiger said. We're all ready to get back to work. I'm glad we stayed strong because we ended up with a lot better contract than the original. The months of negotiations and resulting contract are a testament to the need for organized labor, Moore said. People need a voice, otherwise a job is dictated, he said. Every contract that I've been through, we've fought to keep what we have. We haven't asked for the world. Swiger agreed the deal ironed out between the union and Ingredient shows the continued need for organized labor. Companies are very determined to think of the bottom line instead of the person, Swiger said. 
I still feel like a lot of people think there's no need for unions nowadays, but there's just as much a need now as there was years ago because of the fact that there are actual people with families working for them that need a decent wage and a work-life balance. Companies say it, but they don't live it. BCTGM International President Anthony Shelton, in a statement, said he is proud of the tenacity of the union's striking members, as well as the union negotiating committee's commitment to achieving a fair contract for local members. This has been a long and difficult fight for our striking members and their families, Shelton said. With each new day on that picket line, fighting for what they deserve, our members grew in strength, courage, and determination. I could not be more proud of these hard-working members who put it all out on the line to fight for a fair contract. Becca Harry, Ingredian Corporate Communications Director, said in a statement the company is pleased the union voted to ratify the agreement for a new four-year contract. The new contract provides increased wages, comprehensive benefits and growth opportunities for employees, and reinforces our continued vital role in the community, Harry said. We look forward to welcoming our employees back to Cedar Rapids and working together to ensure the best environment for all employees, the company, and the community to thrive. State Representative Sammy Sheets, a Democrat out of Cedar Rapids, said in a statement that while no one expected this strike to go on for nearly six months, the workers inspired people with their courage and set an example. From the beginning, we stood with the union workers fighting for a fair contract with Ingredian, Sheets said. Workers across Iowa and across the United States can look to the example set by these brave leaders, and the union workers at Ingredian and their families can look forward to more prosperity in the days ahead. Cedar Rapids Mayor Tiffany O'Donnell previously said news of a deal being reached between both parties was a relief for the city. Ingredian is an important part of our community, as are its loyal and dedicated workers, O'Donnell said. It's my hope that we can all put this behind us and support the company and the teams as they get back to work. Our next story, lawmakers look for ways to take on cybercrime. Bills follow attacks on Iowa school systems last year. This is by Caleb McCullough out of Des Moines. Cybersecurity is the focus of a slate of bills in the Iowa legislature. I'm sorry, the Iowa legislature, as lawmakers hope to provide resources to schools, local governments, and other entities to respond to cyber attacks. A new technology committee in the Iowa Senate was formed this year, and the State House's Technology Committee is considering bills criminalizing ransomware in the Iowa Code, creating a cybersecurity unit in state government, and seeking to develop cybersecurity professionals in the state, among other things. Cyber attacks attempts to access, damage, or destroy a computer system, have been on the rise. Attacks increased by 28% globally in the third quarter of 2022, according to Checkpoint, a cybersecurity company. Schools, healthcare settings, banking, and utilities are common targets, Checkpoint says. Chris Knoyer, a Republican from LeClaire, who chairs the new Senate Technology Committee, says she wants to look at finding measures that will arm schools and local governments with the tools to defend against the attacks. It's really important that we pay attention to it at the state level, she said, and make sure that we're providing the Iowa chief information officer the resources that he needs to go out and support those local governments. When it comes to the private sector, Kenora said she wants to address concerns without hamstringing businesses' ability to function. I want to be able to responsibly use technology to protect the rights of our citizens, the privacy of our citizens, without tying the hands of our business and technology sector, she said, because we want to continue to attract businesses and tech in the state. 
J.D. Scholten, a Democrat from Sioux City who sits on the House Economic Growth and Technology Committee, said he hopes the committee passes legislation that is flexible and can react to the rapid pace of technology challenges government is facing. Some of the bills are 10 years too late, he said. What I don't want is to have this as a bill that we see in several other areas where we're trying to adjust things from 1992 legislation, he said. Technology is going to be ever-evolving, and we need to make sure that we keep up with the times. Challenges to Cybersecurity In a presentation to the Senate Technology Committee last week, two security experts said while Iowa is in a relatively strong position on cybersecurity, challenges exist with collaboration between the public and private sectors. Both private industry and the public sector struggle with finding people with the expertise to respond to their needs. Doug Jacobson, director of Iowa State University's Cybersecurity Center, told the committee, Communication between the two areas also could be improved, and private businesses aren't always granted access to the same information as governments, he said. Smaller organizations also can have a difficult time getting funding or accessing resources during a cyber attack, said Aaron Warner, who runs Coralville-based cybersecurity firm ProCircular. Those FBI case agents carry 30 cases. Probably a million dollars is an average amount of ransomware that they're dealing with. So that small accounting firm in Clorinda is going to have great difficulty getting access to those cybersecurity resources, he said. Ransomware. One bill passed out of a subcommittee would make it a crime to launch a ransomware attack punishable by up to a Class C felony. Ransomware a type of software that disables a computer system until a sum of money is paid, is not currently a crime under state law in Iowa. An advocate said it's an important first step in adding protection for businesses and government organizations. Major school districts were disrupted in ransomware attacks last year. The Cedar Rapids Community School District paid a ransom after suffering a cyber attack last summer, though it did not disclose the amount paid. Weeks later, names and social security numbers of thousands of current and former employees may have been stolen in a cybersecurity breach at the Linmar Community School District. And a hacker group claimed to have stolen troves of data from the Davenport District, and a spokesperson said the hackers demanded a ransom, but it was not paid. Sheila King, the chief information officer for Central Iowa's Heartland Area Education Agency, said schools are among the top target for ransomware attacks. Having penalties for violators seems like a reasonable thing, she said. We see this as a top issue for the education community. Molly Ross, the vice president of operations for the Technology Association of Iowa, said the bill is a good start for protecting Iowa businesses as well. Ransomware is a crime on the federal level. Attacks often come from international sources, and prosecution is difficult. Still, Ross said, the state law could act as a hindrance, from someone building ransomware or launching an attack in Iowa. Anything we can do to help prevent those attacks from happening in the first place is a good start, she said. Right now, ransomware is technically legal in Iowa, which is pretty outrageous. I think everyone would agree. Some other states have made it illegal for government organizations to pay a ransom after suffering an attack, but Warner urged lawmakers not to limit options. It's not a time to be taking options off the table, particularly if you're a school district that has students that start tomorrow, and in order to make that happen, you have to pay a ransom, he said. Cybersecurity Unit Another bill that cleared a subcommittee would create a cybersecurity, excuse me, a cybersecurity unit in the state office of the chief information officer, 
that would collect data and report on cybersecurity breaches in the state. That bill received some pushback from lobbyists for local governments and utilities during a subcommittee meeting over concerns it would limit their ability to react to a cyber attack and would require the reporting of confidential data. The terms of the bill give broad reporting requirements to government entities that experience a cyber attack, requiring them to report the date of the incident, the date it was discovered, what data was accessed or obtained, a list of agencies that will be notified, and additional information to the extent available. Doug Stroik, a lobbyist for the city of Des Moines, said he was concerned other provisions of the bill would give the state office too broad authority over how local entities can respond. When you read this in its entirety, it appears to be giving the cybersecurity unit the ability to manage and coordinate a response of a political subdivision to a cybersecurity event, he said. The area education agencies of Iowa are registered in favor of the bill. King said it would create a support system for public entities. Any time in our public system that we can add expertise or structure to supporting cybersecurity, it seems that this is a reasonable approach and could be a good thing, she said. Essential purpose for cities, counties. Another bill soon to go to the subcommittee review would require cities and counties to protect against cyber attacks as part of their legally defined essential purposes. The bill would allow counties broader freedom to spend public funds on cybersecurity without requiring a public vote to take on debt, said Lucas Benkin, public policy specialist for the Iowa State Association of Counties. We think that's very important because of the timeliness of making these investments if they're necessary, he said, not having to wait for approval next election, special election, whatever the case may be. Sometimes these things need to happen quickly. Establishing Training Center A cybersecurity simulation training center would be established at ISU under another bill being considered in the House. Dubbed SciSim, the center is proposed to be a cyber sports complex that would train students using simulations, challenges, and scrimmages to respond to cyber attacks, according to ISU. It would also be a resource for businesses, state agencies, and other government bodies, according to the bill. Warner said he was excited about the program because it would train experts that could fill the needs seen across the state. Every single person in this program is a potential employee resident in the state of Iowa, Wagner said. They're all very highly compensated because they're in huge demand. They're exactly the kind of people that we want to recruit here in the state of Iowa. I'm going to turn to the Iowa Today section with the headline, Old Marion Library Could Be Demolished by Summer. Bids being taken till February 14th with two other reviews scheduled. This is by Gage Miskimen. This is out of Marion. The city of Marion is aiming to have the old Marion Public Library building raised by summer. The city council on Thursday night approved those the calendar for the disposal project, directing staff to go forward with the bidding process. The city engineer's preliminary estimate for the project is $500,000. Bids will be received February 14th for possible council consideration at its February 23rd meeting. The work is to be completed by May 26th. The old library at 1095 6th Avenue opened in 1996 and was heavily damaged in the August 2020 derecho when it lost around 20% of its collection. The city's new library, across 11th Street from the old library, opened in November. The demolition project now will be reviewed by the Uptown Marion Design Committee and the Planning and Zoning Commission. 
Those entities primarily will be looking at how the site will be left after the demolition, including parking, seating, and access as part of the central corridor review process. City Manager Ryan Waller previously said the reason to do both that review and the bidding at the same time is to take advantage of the slower construction season and save taxpayer dollars. The Uptown Marion Design Committee is expected to discuss the February, excuse me, the project February 1st and the Planning and Zoning Commission on February 14th, both before the Council's February 23rd meeting. Property insurance paid around $270,000 for derecho damage at the old library, used for temporary repairs, replacement of lost items, and rental of temporary spaces for library operations, and $625,000 was applied to cover lost revenue. The city has $381,355 left in insurance money, with its use yet to be determined. Funding for the city's new $18 million library came from $3.3 million in donations, $5 million million from local option sales taxes, and $10 million from general obligation bonds. One dead, one injured in fall off scaffold. Incident happened at Farm Tech in Dyersville. This is by John McGlothian from the Gazette. One man was killed and another was injured in a fall from a scaffold last week in Dyersville, according to a news release from the city's chief of police. At 8.37 a.m. Thursday, emergency responders were dispatched for an industrial accident at Farm Tech at 1440 Field of Dreams Way in southwest Dyersville. Police found two victims who had fallen from 20 feet from a portable scaffold. One was not breathing and police began CPR. One who fell was identified as 50-year-old Bruce Bockenstedt of Manchester. He was transported to a Dyersville hospital and did not survive his injuries. The other was transported to a Dubuque hospital and later transferred to the University of Iowa hospitals and clinics. Police did not have an update on his status. The accident remains under investigation. Arizona homicide suspect arrested in Iowa. This is out of the Associated Press. In Tucson, Arizona, a 24-year-old suspect in an Arizona homicide who's been the target of a manhunt for nearly nine months has been arrested in northern Iowa, where he's been jailed and his bail set at $1 million while awaiting extradition back to Tucson. Federal marshals tracked Trevante Howard Brown to a Charles City home about 150 miles northeast of Des Moines, where he briefly barricaded himself inside before he was taken into custody Friday, Tucson police said. He was wanted on a first-degree murder and attempted first-degree murder warrant out of southern Arizona's Pima County in the April 22nd fatal shooting on the edge of the University of Arizona campus, police said. Police identified Howard Brown as a suspect and issued the warrant for his arrest about a week after 24-year-old Harrison Weber was fatally shot and a second gunshot victim seriously injured. Howard Brown is being held as a fugitive in the Floyd County Jail in Charles City. A school in the town was briefly placed on lockdown Friday morning near the home where U.S. Marshals and Charles City Police arrested him, KIMT-TV reported. Tucson police said they issued the arrest warrant April 28 and requested assistance from the U.S. Marshals Service after searches with canines and a helicopter failed to locate Howard Brown. They said at the time he should be considered armed and dangerous. Police said the shooting stemmed from a confrontation between two groups but have released few other details. 
It wasn't immediately clear if Howard Brown had a lawyer or would be appointed one. In our top story section, the headline is Lawmaker Pitches Bills to Restrict CO2 Pipelines. Republicans aim to limit eminent domain power. By Jared Strong out of the Iowa Capitol Dispatch. A spate of bills introduced in the Iowa Senate could severely restrict ongoing plans by companies to build pipelines to transport captured carbon dioxide from ethanol plants in the state. Five bills introduced by Senator Jeff Taylor, a Sioux Center Republican, would curtail eminent domain opportunities for hazardous liquid pipeline companies, limit their ability to conduct land surveys, and negotiate easements for that land and require them to identify their investors. Taylor was among a minority of vocal Republicans to push for more protections in last year's legislative session for landowners who opposed three projects that would lay about 2,000 miles of pipe across the state. The only provision that gained traction last year would have delayed the empowerment of eminent domain authority for the projects until next month. It was not ultimately adopted and would have likely been ineffectual anyway. A final permit hearing for the company furthest along in the process, Summit Carbon Solutions, has not yet been scheduled by state regulators who could grant the eminent domain power. But the issue gained new traction during last year's election cycle. In my 16 years in the Iowa House, I have never heard more concerns from constituents related to a single issue than the CO2 pipeline project currently proposed for our area. Iowa House Speaker Pat Grassley, Republican out of New Hartford, wrote in a letter to state regulators about a week before the election. Taylor's bills would have far-reaching consequences. One would eliminate the use of eminent domain for their construction. That, in many ways, is my number one preference because it gives the strongest protection to landowners and does the best job of addressing the constitutional problems with eminent domain for private companies for private profit, he said. Three companies, Summit Carbon Solutions, Navigator Heartland Greenway, and Wolf Carbon Solutions have proposed building pipelines to transport liquefied CO2 from Iowa ethanol plants to underground sequestration sites in North Dakota and Illinois. Only one of them, Wolf, whose pipeline would include the ADM plant in Cedar Rapids, has said it does not plan to use eminent domain to acquire easements. Taylor said that proposal faces the largest uphill battle in the legislature. In lieu of that, another bill would require the companies to gain the permission of landowners for 90% of the route to enable the use of eminent domain for the remainder. The Iowa Farm Bureau Federation recently indicated it would support that. Summit said Friday it has signed voluntary easements for about 63% of its route in Iowa. That's up from about 50% in September. Under current law, there is no requirement for a percentage of voluntary easements for a project to qualify for eminent domain authority. Summit has said it hopes to get final approval for its project from the Iowa Utilities Board in June and to start construction this fall. About its progress for obtaining voluntary easements, the company said, This support tells us Iowa landowners along the route view the project as a critical to supporting the state's most important industry, agriculture. We look forward to continuing to work with landowners, stakeholders, and policymakers to advance our nearly $987 million investment in Iowa's future. Another of Taylor's bills would remove the pipeline company's abilities to conduct land surveys without landowner permission. Iowa law allows the surveys, 
which are used to determine the depth and path of potential pipelines, after the companies have held public meetings and provided notice of the surveys. That part of the law is being challenged in court by multiple landowners who have refused to allow surveyors from Summit and Navigator CO2 Ventures onto their properties. It also is the subject of a criminal trespassing charge in Dickinson County. Another Taylor bill would prevent pipeline companies from contacting unwilling landowners to negotiate voluntary easements, and the last would require pipeline companies to identify their investors. As part of the permit process, pipeline companies would have to provide a list of investors and their projected contributions based on monetary ranges, with the top category of over $1 million. Taylor said it's likely that one or more of the bills will have company excuse me, will have companion bills in the House, but he was unsure when they might be filed or by whom. The pipelines have been promoted as a boon to ethanol plants, which could reap billions of federal tax incentives to limit greenhouse gas emissions and could also sell their fuels at a premium in low-carbon markets. The ethanol industry is important for Iowa farmers because more than half their corn is used to produce the fuel. Now we will turn to the opinion section. And this article is by David Ignatius, a syndicated columnist for the Washington Post. And the headline is, Ukraine Front Likely to Move, But Which Way? Back in 2013, Russian General Valery Gerasimov succinctly stated the nightmare problem he now faces as the newly installed leader of Russia's bungled war against Ukraine. You cannot generate ideas on command. Gerasimov, the chief of staff of the Russian military, this month was given the thankless task of directing Russian forces in Ukraine. Since Gerasimov helped plan the botched invasion last February, this might seem like doubling down on failure. But U.S. analysts believe that Gerasimov has promised his boss, President Vladimir Putin, that he will employ more aggressive tactics to regain the initiative. The Gerasimov appointment comes as Ukraine, too, is moving to use new weapons and tactics to break out of what has become a bloody stalemate. For both sides, 2023 will see attempts to redraw largely static battle lines. A front line of World War I-style trenches might become a more fluid and unpredictable battle space this year. Gerasimov dreamed a decade ago of modernizing the Russian military to conduct this sort of modern battle. In a widely read 2013 article, he said that the very rules of war have changed. Russia's traditional brute force tactics were outmoded. Frontal engagements of large formations of forces are gradually becoming a thing of the past. Instead, he argued, Russia, Russia needed speed, quick movements, the smart use of paratroops and encircling forces, along with irregular hybrid forces to fight behind the lines. It didn't work out the way Gerasimov and Putin hoped. To put it mildly, Russia tried its version of a lightning strike to capture Kiev, but it hadn't reckoned on Ukrainian valor or Russian incompetence. Since the failure of, failure of Putin's plan to quickly seize the capital, Russian forces have retrenched and retreated. Putin, who sells himself as a decisive leader, has instead been reactive, with decisions forced on him by battlefield reversals. After Ukrainian forces retook Kharkiv in a bold September counteroffensive, Putin hastily annexed four regions where Russia's hold was precarious. 
after Ukrainian special operations forces bombed the Kerch Strait bridge in Crimea in October, a desperate Putin launched a missile assault on Ukraine's civilian infrastructure that continues to this day. The appointment of Gerasimov is Putin's latest Hail Mary pass, and U.S. officials doubt it will succeed. The biggest problem is the chaotic command structure under him. Hastily trained conscripts are being rushed to the front as little more than cannon fodder. Meanwhile, the Wagner militia, led by catering oligarch Yevgeny Prigozhin, has taken a lead role in the bitter but strategically meaningless battle for Bakhmut in eastern Ukraine. It's a crazy time for the Russian military when a Wagner soldier posted a profane video in December denouncing Gerasimov. Pergozin dug the knife in deeper by posting, The guys asked me to pass along that when you're sitting in a warm office, it's hard to hear the problems on the front line. Remember, this Wagner front line is manned partly by ex-convicts who have been promised that if they survive, they might get their freedom. What an army. Amid this backbiting, amplified by Russian military bloggers, Putin decided to hand Gerasimov the poison chalice of direct command. The man he will replace... General Sergei Suravakim is said to have counseled caution in protecting the Russian army in Kherson and elsewhere, and was also friendly with Prigozhin. Gerasimov will try to restore military order among bickering commanders and also initiate complex operations of the sort he envisioned in 2013. One expert skeptically recalls a Russian proverb, he can't outleap himself. As the new year dawns, Ukraine appears to be generating momentum. The United States and its NATO allies are providing a new arsenal of mobile weapons. Tanks and heavy armored vehicles that would, in theory, allow the Ukrainians to conduct American-style maneuver warfare. Just as important, NATO is providing Ukrainian soldiers with a crash course in using these weapons effectively. This is one of those moments in time where if you want to make a difference, this is it, General Mark Miley chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, told American trainers in a visit Monday to a camp in Germany where Ukrainian soldiers are getting a rush education in what the Pentagon likes to call combined arms operations. A big question is whether the Ukrainians will have enough mobile firepower to conduct the kind of maneuver warfare that NATO commanders advocate. So far, the United States has promised about 50 Bradley fighting vehicles. Germany has pledged about 40 martyr fighting vehicles, and Britain has pledged 14 Challenger tanks. That's not even close to the 300 tanks that General Valery Zaluzny, the Ukrainian commander, has requested. Germany could release scores of Leopard tanks, and Washington may provide striker combat vehicles. I hope so. This year might prove decisive in Ukraine. The United States and its allies shouldn't support this effort halfway. The West has a strategy. So go for it. You are listening to the Cedar Rapids Gazette on IRIS, the Iowa Reading Radio Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, give us a call at 515-243-6833. And now we'll turn to today's obituaries. We'll begin with Emma Jean Severson, 91, of Cedar Rapids, passed away on Friday, January 20th. Family and friends will gather for an informal visitation from 4 to 6 p.m. Tuesday, January 24th, at Sharon United Methodist Church in Cedar Rapids. 
A celebration of life is planned for later in the spring. Arrangements are with Stuart Baxter Funeral and Memorial Services, Cedar Rapids. Survivors include her husband of 72 years, Laverne, children Helen, spouse Robert Wirtz, Boyd, spouse Diane, Severson, Craig, spouse Marlene, Severson, Karen, spouse Jim, Wilson, and Gary Severson. 14 grandchildren, 17 great-grandchildren, two great-great-grandchildren, nieces Etta, spouse Randy Heaton, and Jackie Holscher, and several special friends. Emma was born June 30, 1931, the daughter of Waldo and Helen Petherbridge Curtis. On December 9, 1950, she married Laverne Severson. Emma dedicated her life to caring for her family. She especially loved spending time with her grandchildren. Emma enjoyed cooking, reading, quilting, and hitting as many garage sales as she could. She was a member of Sharon United Methodist Church. She was preceded in death by her parents, brothers Richard and Boyd Curtis, sister Elizabeth Essex, grandsons Jason and Justin Wilson, and granddaughter Robert, uh, excuse me, granddaughter Roberta Wirtz. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to Hospice of Mercy or Sharon United Methodist Church. Please share your support and memories with Emma's family on her tribute wall at StuartBaxter.com under obituaries. James Landrum Lanny Parker out of Cedar Rapids. A memorial service will be held Tuesday, January 24th at 11 a.m. in the Chapel of Memories at Cedar Memorial, 4200 First Avenue, Northeast Cedar Rapids. The family has requested that in lieu of flowers, memorials be directed to Connie Maxwell Children's Ministries, P.O. Box 1178, Greenwoods, South Carolina, 29648. Online condolences may be left at cedarmemorial.com under obituaries. Jim Jones, 88, of Cedar Point, passed away Thursday, January 19th at Mercy Halmer in Cedar Rapids. Funeral service, 3 p.m. Friday, January 27th, at Alice United Methodist Church in Cedar Point. Visitation will begin one hour prior at the church. A private family burial will take place at Cedar Point Cemetery in Cedar Point. Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Cedar Point is assisting the family. Jim was born July 20, 1934, in Bagley, Wisconsin, the son of Leo and Lucy Ward Jones. He graduated from Bagley High School in 1952. Jim was united in marriage to Loretta O'Connor on October 8, 1955, at the Little Brown Church in Nashua. Jim worked at Wilson Foods for 30 years and worked on the family farm. He then took over his grandfather-in-law's monument company and renamed it Jones Monument. He was a member of the Cedar Point Lions Club, Erie Ambulance, and Volunteer Fire Department. Jim was also a part of the Frozen Feud Snowmobile Club. Jim and Loretta enjoyed traveling all over the country and the world. They shared a love of horseback riding, snowmobiling, and showing horses with their son, DeWitt. You could also catch up with Jim over breakfast at the coffee shop in Cedar Point. He will be missed by all who knew and loved him. Survivors include his wife, Loretta Jones, of Cedar Point, son Tim, spouse Rose Jones of Gladstone, Illinois, grandchildren Pat, spouse Jessica Jones of Fairfield, Christopher, spouse Caitlin Jones of Village of Lakewood, Illinois, Nicholas Jones of Seattle, Washington, Indiana Jones of Greenville, South Carolina, Trinity Jones of Taylors, South Carolina, great-grandchildren Ava, Kate, Carrick, and Quinn Jones, daughter-in-law Jennifer Jenny Jones of Greer, South Carolina. Jim was preceded in death by his parents, sons Brad Jones and his wife Cindy, 
and DeWitt Jones, and sisters Ruth, Joyce, Evanella, Patricia, and Dorothy. Memorials may be directed to Alice United Methodist Church or Cedar Point Area Ambulance Service. Please share a memory of Jim at MurdochFuneralHome.com under obituaries. Eileen Aosi passed away peacefully surrounded by her four children on January 21st. She was born on January 3rd, 1931 in Sioux City, Iowa. She met the love of her life, David, before he served in the Korean War, and they wrote to each other during his entire service. After the war, they were more married in 1953, and they raised four children. Eileen was a devoted wife and mother who loved her family. She always opened her home to family and friends who felt welcomed and loved. Along with raising her four children, Eileen worked at Rockwell Collins for more than 40 years. She loved her time working at Rockwell Collins and developed many friends. Eileen was known by her family and friends to be kind and loving, often described as a second mother. She was generous and instilled in her children the importance of helping others. Over the years, Eileen applied her compassion and strong skills to volunteering with International Medical Corps. Eileen was preceded in death by her husband David, parents Alex and Gailey Nassid, brothers Sam Nassid, and sister Naomi Alner. She is survived by her four children, Sam, spouse Tammy, Aussie, Nancy, Aussie, husband Bruce Sundland, I'm sorry, husband Bill Sundland, Linda, Aussie, and Mona, Aussie, two sisters, Alia, husband James, Aussie, and Lila, husband Jim, Gage, three grandchildren, Christine, Tiffany, and Sam, five great-grandchildren, Jordan, Riley, Aniston, Macklin, and Grace, one great-granddaughter, Emerson, as well as many nieces and nephews. On Tuesday, January 25th, visitation will begin at 10 a.m., followed by services at 11 a.m. at Brosh Chapel, located at 2121 Bowling Street, southwest Cedar Rapids. Lunch will be served following the services and burial at Brosh Chapel in the Ava Center. Memorial contributions may be made in memory of Eileen Ossie to International Medical Corps, 12400 Wilshire Boulevard, Suite 1500, Los Angeles, California, 90025, or at org. We are grateful for the long-term care and compassion our mom received by Dr. Mary Ann Nelson and for the caring staff at Mercy Medical Center, St. Luke's Transitional Care Center, Cottage Grove Place, and St. Croix Hospice. Online condolences may be expressed to the family at brochelchapel.com. Frank Roy Helenthal passed away on January 20th. He was born in West Liberty, Iowa, to Elsie Spursleg and Roy Helenthal on March 22, 1947. Four years later, his brother Al came along to provide him with a playmate and lifelong friend. Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Cedar Rapids assisted the family. Frank loved living in West Liberty and enjoyed small-town freedom growing up. Golfing, baseball, and train trips to see his beloved cubs filled the summers. Uncle Frank's visits were highlights of winter months. The friends he made as a youth were cherished throughout his life. He graduated from the University of Iowa and worked as an accountant and later in IT after completing a degree at Mount Mercy. His greatest joys were his children, Amanda Helenthal out of Devon, Pennsylvania, Melissa Keller, U. Samptons, Germany, and Bern Tan, spouse Eric Davis out of Brooklyn, New York. 
He was blessed with an overflowing heart for his children and endless patience and acceptance. He will also be missed by his three beloved grandchildren, Arlie and Elsie, Devon, Pennsylvania, and Maddie, Samtons, Germany. He is also survived by Connie, whom he married in 1970, his brother, Al Helenthal, spouse Dixie, sister-in-law Joyce Perkins, spouse John, brother-in-law Jerry Morrison, and many nieces and nephews. Bridge was an important part of his life. He reached the rank of Diamond Life Master and enjoyed playing online when his mobility didn't allow him to attend in-person events. He will be remembered for his wit, his dry sense of humor, his fierce intellect, and his intolerance for mediocrity. But perhaps he'll be most remembered for how he parented his children and helped them to be the wonderful people they are. Please share a memory of Frank at MurdochFuneralHome.com under Obituaries. David Livingston of Cedar Rapids, our beloved David Livingston, died unexpectedly on December 17, 2022, at his residence in Cedar Rapids. His memory lives on with his survived wife, Irina, his son, Robert, and his mother, Alice, and father, John. Robert F. Barta, 98, of Cedar Rapids, passed away on Saturday, January 21st, at the Dennis and Donna Oldorf Hospice House of Mercy. Visitation will be 4 to 7 p.m. Wednesday, January 25th, at Brosh Chapel and the Ava Center, located at 2121 Bowling Street Southwest, Cedar Rapids. Funeral Mass will be at 10 a.m. Thursday, January 26th, at St. Wenceslas Catholic Church, with burial to follow in St. John's Catholic Cemetery. John Joseph Kinney, uh, excuse me, 57, passed away on January 17th after a sudden illness. Mass of Christian burial will be celebrated at 10 a.m. Saturday, January 28th, at St. Patrick Catholic Church. Visitation will be from 4 to 7 p.m. Friday, January 27th, at Lensing Funeral and Cremation Service, with a time of remembrance and sharing of memories to begin at 5.30 p.m. A brunch will follow the funeral mass at the church before burial at St. Joseph Cemetery. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to Mainstream Living, 2012 East 13th Street, Ames, Iowa. For use by the Dayhab program, where John was a longtime participant. John is survived by his siblings Ellen, spouse Tom, Rowan, Mary Catherine, spouse Dick, Craig, Marguerite, spouse Tom, Hunsinger, Beth Ann Montgomery, Fran, spouse Ray, Dolezal, Mark, spouse Lynn, Kinney, and William, spouse Dina, Kinney, and nieces and nephews Katie, spouse Rich Cohen, Martha Lynn, spouse Lee Babcock, Michael, spouse Amber Rowan, Daniel, spouse Tina Craig, Matthew, spouse Kristen Craig, Travis, spouse Autumn Craig, Jason, spouse Sarah Hunsinger, Erica Hunsinger, Chad, spouse Katie Montgomery, David, spouse Lori Montgomery, Jessica Kinney, Sarah, spouse Matt Schroth, Steve, spouse Kelly Kinney, James Kelly, Rachel Dolezal, Meredith Swazer, Noah Dolezal, Malloy Dolezal, Allison Kinney, and Emily Kinney. He was preceded in death by his parents Edwin and Ellen Kinney, brother Eddie, John Kinney, and his wife Connie, and brother-in-law James Michael Buddha Montgomery. 
The family would like to extend their thanks to Ben and the staff at John's Home in Ames and the mainstream staff at the Dayhab facility. Their kind care was and always will be appreciated. A full obituary memory read at lensingfuneral.com where you may share memories of John and online condolences with his family. Eric Travis Taylor, 37, of Cedar Rapids, passed away on January 10th from injuries sustained in an automobile accident. A celebration of life potluck will be held from 1 to 3 p.m. Saturday, January 28th, in the gymnasium of Grace Baptist Church, 1461 East Post Road, Marion. Eric was born on June 6, 1985, the son of Donald and Jacqueline Orman Taylor. He had worked as a mechanic. Survivors include his parents Donald and Jacqueline Taylor of, well- Taylor of Wellman, daughter Samantha Taylor of Cedar Rapids, son Wyatt Taylor of Cedar Rapids, brothers Jeremy Taylor of Wellman and Danny Taylor of Wellman, sister Shanna Taylor of Cedar Rapids, and nieces and nephews. Preceding him in death is both sets of parents. I'm sorry, both sets of grandparents. Mary Marler of Cedar Rapids passed away on January 19th at the age of 91. She was born in Dysart, Iowa on June 11, 1931, the daughter of George and Anna Hay. Mary was married to William Marler in 1986 in Tampa, Florida, where she made her home. Mary was a registered nurse, having graduated from Mercy Hospital School of Nursing in Cedar Rapids in 1952 and retiring from nursing in 1992 after serving 40 years. She was a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Mary is survived by three children, Teresa, spouse Richard Thomas of Cedar Rapids, Diana Ely, spouse Patrick Wedmore of Belle Plaine, and Thomas Copen of Belle Plaine, sister Corinne Holland of of Zephyr Hills, Florida, three grandchildren, and six great-grandchildren. Mary was preceded in death by her husband, her parents, and one brother. Fond memories and expressions of sympathy may be shared at stevensmemorialchapel.com for the Marler family. Mary K. Zimmerman of Iowa City, 84, died peacefully Friday, January 20th. Funeral services will be held at 11 a.m. Wednesday, January 25th at Lansing Funeral and Cremation Service, Iowa City. Visitation will be from 10 to 11 a.m. Prior to the service, burial will be at St. Joseph's Cemetery. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to Friends of St. Bridget's. Mary Kay was born December 24th, 1938 in Iowa City, the daughter of John and Edna Mahoney Zimmerman. She was a 1957 graduate of West Branch High School. Mary Kay was employed at UIHC, where she worked in the dietary department for 40 years. She was a member of St. Wenceslas Church and loved the weekly lunch outings with her sisters and visits with her brothers Bob and Doc. Mary Kay is survived by her siblings John, Doc, spouse Doreen Zimmerman, Bob Zimmerman, spouse Jolene, Sandra Kugel, Patricia Leskinich, Sharon, spouse Bill Braddock, Sue, excuse me, Sue, spouse Bob Randall, and Don Zimmerman, and numerous nieces and nephews. She was preceded in death by her parents, her sister Cindy Hickey, infant sister Judy, sister-in-law Pat, brothers-in-law Ed Kugel, Gary Leskinich, and Ken Hickey, her nephew Ryan, and good friend Jackie Grady. 
Online condolences may be shared at lensingfuneral.com. Bonnie Mae Brecht, 75, of Norway, Iowa, passed away Monday, January 16th at Colonial Manor Care Center, Amana, following a short illness. Mass of Christian burial is 10.30 a.m. at St. Michael's Catholic Church, Norway, with Father Craig Steimel officiating. Visitation will be one hour prior to the service at the church. Burial will be at St. Michael's Cemetery, Norway. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to Essence of Life Hospice Amana. Online condolences can be made to the family at newhoffsfuneralservice.com. Bonnie was born May 14, 1947, to Kenneth and Marie Schulte Brecht. She lived on the farm, family farm north of Norway until moving to Marengo to start her teaching career. She later moved back to the family farm to help care for her parents when their health failed. After their passing, Bonnie moved to Norway with her brother, Alan. She cared for him until his passing. Bonnie graduated from Norway High School with the class of 1965. Following graduation, she attended Mount Mercy College, where she obtained her bachelor degree in teaching. In 1969, she began teaching at Iowa Valley School in Marengo, where she taught business and music. She also helped with the school musicals and accompanied students on the piano for state competitions and was a scorekeeper for many years for basketball games. In 1977, she obtained her master's degree from the University of Iowa. She retired in 2011, but continued teaching the tech program until 2014. Bonnie was an accomplished pianist and organist. She played the organ for weekly mass at both St. Michael's and St. Patrick Catholic Church, along with numerous weddings and funerals. She gave piano lessons to several local students for many years. When Bonnie's health began to fail, she moved to Colonial Manor Nursing Home, Amana. Bonnie continued to play the piano on a regular basis for staff and residents until three weeks before her passing. The staff told family members she was kind and willing to help the other residents. The family would like to thank the staff at Colonial Manor for the care and compassion they gave Bonnie. Brosh Funeral Service of Norway is assisting the family in their time of need. Margaret Peggy Weber Markle of Pace, Florida. Margaret Peggy Markle, 64, formerly of Cedar Rapids, passed away on January 2nd in Pace, Florida. A celebration of life will be held in Cedar Rapids at a later date. Peggy was born on January 5, 1958, the daughter of Joseph and Pearl Weber. She graduated from LaSalle High School in 1976 and Mount Mercy College in 1980 with a degree in business administration. Peggy was united in marriage to Dennis Markle on July 18, 1998. Peggy worked at a variety of places, including Wilson Foods, an insurance company, co-owning the Hotel Manning in Kiyosakwa, and MCI for over 20 years. Peggy enjoyed following the Iowa Hawkeyes football, shopping, collecting antiques, and time with family and friends. Left to cherish her memories are her husband, Dennis, of Pace, Florida, her siblings, Sister Marlene Backen, North Dakota, Dennis, spouse Jill Backen, and Sharon Ragavacari, brothers-in-law Craig Markle, and Terry, spouse Kelly Markle, sisters-in-law Deanne, spouse Kevin Flanker, Sharon, spouse Mark Smith-Losia, and Tammy, spouse Denny DeVore, nieces and nephews, and extended family members. She was preceded by her parents and mother-in-law. Cremation services were provided by Bayview Fisher Poe Chapel of Pensacola, Florida. 
Memorials may be sent to Notre Dame Sisters Memorial Association, 3501 State Street, Omaha, Nebraska, 68112. Lynn Allen Hansel of Martell, 61, died Friday at Unity Point Health St. Luke's Hospital, Cedar Rapids. A celebration of Lynn's life will be held at a later date. Please visit gotchonline.com to share your thoughts, memories, stories, and condolences with his family. Lynn Allen Hansel was born September 21, 1961, in Manchester, the son of Eugene and Merle Kellogg Hansel. He grew up in Garber and moved to the Martell area in the late 1970s. He was united in marriage to Linda Marie Angel on November 5, 1988, in Anamosa. She died in 2015. He was employed as an auto mechanic and worked at Tyson's, Stickle Farms, Goodyear, and Wilkin Automotive Services, all in Anamosa. He enjoyed hunting, fishing, riding four-wheelers, cutting wood, and being a real gearhead, anything that had to do with fast cars. Above all else, he loved spending time with his family and friends. He is survived by his sons, Timothy, spouse Jackie, Mechanicsville, Josh, spouse Tori of Lisbon, Jake um, from Martell, a stepson, Will, from Burlington, several grandchildren, his siblings, Mark, excuse me, Barb Moser, Bobby and Glenn, and a brother-in-law, Nick Lewin, as well as many nieces and nephews. In addition to his wife, Linda, he was preceded in death by his parents and siblings, Roger, Laverle, and Jeanette. In lieu of flowers and gifts, memorials may be directed to his GoFundMe page or to Exchange State Bank in Martell. Donna Jean Dvorak from Chelsea passed away January 20th at Iowa River Hospice, Marshalltown. Family, private family service will take place with burial at Stake Skull Cemetery, Vining, Iowa. Online condolences can be sent to the family at newhoffsfuneralservice.com. Herback New Haas Funeral Service is assisting the family. Mildred Maxine Burris, 97, of Vinton, died January 19 at the Vinton Lutheran Home. A visitation will be held at 10 a.m. with a celebration of life service at 11 a.m. Saturday, January 28, at the First Christian Church in Vinton, with Pastor Richard Jumper officiating. Interment will be at 2.30 p.m. in Westview Cemetery, Laporte City. Van Steen Husen-Tehan Funeral Home is caring for Mildred and her family. Mildred was born February 4, 1925 in Laporte City, the daughter of Max Carl and Laura Adele Rundle Schreiber. She attended Laporte City Elementary and graduated from Janesville High School. On March 23, 1946, Mildred was united in marriage with Donald Burris at the Little Brown Church in Nashua. The couple made their home in Vinton and Shellsburg. They later divorced and Mildred returned to Vinton in 1967 until moving to Cedar Rapids in 1995. In 2017, she returned to the Vinton Lutheran home. Mildred worked as a dietary aide at Virginia Gay Hospital in Vinton for 20 years, retiring in 1990. Mildred was a member of First Christian Church in Vinton and Marion. Her hobby was genealogy, and she worked for many years on the lineage of both sides of her family. She loved nature and enjoyed the outdoors, especially watching and feeding the birds and working in her butterfly garden. She enjoyed her church friends at both church and her apartment complex, 
But first and foremost, she loves spending time with her children, grandchildren, and siblings. Mildred is survived by two sons, Gregory, spouse Marla Burris of Centerpoint, and Robert Burris of Manchester. One daughter, Connie McAnally of California, daughter-in-law Kathy Burris, 15 grandchildren, 20 great-grandchildren, and seven great-great-grandchildren. She was preceded in death by one daughter, Vera Sens, one son, David Burris, three brothers, Laverne Socks, and Mike Schreiber, and Jesse Love, three sisters, Bernadine Hay, Naomi Gunn, and Arlene Schreiber, and son-in-law, Pat McAnally. The family would like to extend a big thank you to the staff at the Vinton Lutheran Home for the excellent care of Millie and also hospice for their care in her final days. A memorial fund has been established. Online condolences may be left at tehenfuneralhome.com. Patrick Pat Michael Kratzer, 78, of Cedar Rapids, formerly of Coggin, passed away on Friday, January 20th at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics in Iowa City. Family will greet friends and family from 5 to 7 Monday, January 23rd, at Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service of Marion. A funeral service will be held at 10.30 a.m. Tuesday, January 24th, with an additional visitation one hour prior at United Parish Church, located at 208 3rd Street North in Coggan. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.